0: Hello, I'm Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kind of take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. This week's Knowledge Bomb is about the supply chain. Have you ever noticed the shortage of trucks on the road? Have you noticed that your Amazon package is taking longer to arrive? Perhaps the cost of goods that you're ordering all suddenly went up due to inflation. Well, part of the, the inflation aspect is... The driver shortage, the trucker driver shortage in America is going to be short by over 100,000 drivers in five years and 160,000 drivers in 2028. And that's that's the future. But today, we don't have enough truck drivers. That's why we're experiencing higher costs, longer shipping times. That's a problem. has to be solved. Drivers to America are now being imported from South Africa because we don't have enough drivers. And this is why we need autonomous trucking autonomous trucking will shore up the supply chain autonomous trucking will lower the cost of goods autonomous trucking will create jobs autonomous trucking will have a positive impact on the u.s economy you know there's a great guy he worked at the department of transportation under secretary elaine chow doing all sorts of really cool work policy work on autonomous vehicles and autonomous trucking his name's Finch Fulton. You might have dealt with Finch when he was at DOT, but now Finch is vice president of policy and strategy at Locomation. So I invited Finch on after discussing with teams. You know what? Finch is going to give us this really great insight, really super interesting insight about autonomous trucking. Talk about the supply chain issues, talk about how autonomous trucking will reduce carbon emissions and will create jobs. Simply put, autonomous trucking is the future. And I'm really honored to have Finch Fulton here today as we dive into this from a policy perspective. And we touch a little bit on our past in music as I worked in the music industry earlier in my career. And, and Finch worked in music as well, writing a really cool music blog, which he'll dive into. If you're enjoying this conversation, you're interested in topics for the podcast, tweet me at GBRULTE on Twitter. I respond... Let's continue the dialogue because we're really trying to make this podcast something interesting where you say, aha, I had that knowledge bomb moment. I learned something. This was really cool. And we hope you really enjoy this really interesting conversation with an incredible individual who's got really great political insight. So enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Finch. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to have you here. You have an incredibly sharp policy mind, incredibly smart individual even more importantly, and I'm a little nervous for this one. Chetton's going to listen and take notes, so we we can't mess this up.
1: Oh, but he's not here now, right? We can edit no. anything I say. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't
0: know. Maybe I'll give him a raw coffee just in case.
1: Finch, <laughs> <laughs> the the funny
0: thing about us is, and I didn't I didn't know this until we started talking when you when you left government that we both started our careers in the music industry. I worked at Epic Records, part of Sony Music. You wrote music blogs and went to shows. I learned a lot during that time. It was one of the greatest times of my life. But I'd love to know, what did you learn during that time? Writing blogs and going to shows? I'm assuming DC, going to the 930 Club and MCI Center back in the day to see large acts. What was that like?
1: Yeah, well, it was super fun. So I would just cover these uh, concerts at night while I was working in the House of Representatives. Um, and the logic was, looking back, the logic wasn't there at all. I would avoid paying like $20 to see like Cold War Kids or Bombay Bicycle Club, bands that nobody really knows about. So I'd avoid paying $20 and then in return would spend eight hours on a Sunday just writing up a blog post so people could really experience what it was like to go to a concert It it took so long and that, you know, I guess, but as a house staffer, you don't have any money. So that was probably my only way to get to do any of these things. But it is funny because I don't know anything about music. So I had to figure out how to sound like I knew what I was talking about in writing in something that I had no idea what I was talking about. So that is actually really good experience.
0: (laughs) I love the idea you're writing to go see free music. It's, 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 it's great way to learn. You can sharpen your writing skills. So you, you know nothing about music, but you know, a ton about policy, you know, about drones, which are, which are really, really cool. What was the attraction of drones and regulatory? Did you take, Hey, wait a second. I learned all this cool stuff with the music industry. I got to see free concerts. Wait, maybe I can get free drones. Is that why you went into that lane?
1: Well I mean at this point I had gone to a public affairs company down in Texas and I just I was interested in the policy it was interesting and I I sort of figured that if I wrote about this one it just makes me look good at work two I was sort of establishing myself as an expert externally because people don't know if your blog is good or not you know they have to be concise and everything and you know oftentimes experts aren't reading through a company's blog um, But it also let me uh, reach out to potential clients and just say, can I interview for this blog? And people will always say yes to that. And then lastly, it, it gave me an excuse to go to things like South by Southwest and CES because I cover it for the company and write about all these drone regulations and everything. Uh, so it, it had a lot of reasons why it made sense. And if you already sort of figured out how to write about stuff that you don't know that much about, you know, pretty soon you actually know these things.
0: Drones are in the news a lot now the the DJI Pentagon ban. Are you still following the drone industry at all?
1: I am definitely because some of these issues that impact the industry as a whole just the innovative ecosystem in America They impact and they can spill over in other areas. So certainly still watching uh, Drones are incredibly difficult to have a nuanced understanding of and every time you look away something's changed So I don't hate that I don't have to read FAA documents as much anymore (laughs) But certainly from the big picture point of view, we're still tracking these things.
0: You did really great work in the, the, the USDOT, but bef- before you went there, you were in presidential politics. You are on a transition team. No matter, Democrat, Republican, working on a presidential transition team would have to be an, an incredible experience. I've never worked on a presidential Transition team. I did have the honor of driving a George W. Bush's motorcade, driving Press Corps one. So that was one heck of a really interesting experience, but you know, it's really small. You're on the transition team. You're you're shifting from one president to another with a balance of power, which makes this real country really, really great. What was that like?
1: It was intense. Um, you'd wake up at six AM, go to the office, work till late at night, and then you still have follow up work, you know, long past midnight to collect all your notes and to get them to make sense. The good thing for me is, you know, my wife and I still lived in Dallas, so I just came up by myself and stayed on a friend's couch. So I just worked for weeks and weeks. And actually to start, I wanted to do it so that I could get more customers and do more business in the drone space. So I figured if I did this, I would, you know, seem like an insider and do all these things and, you know, write all these policies and then eventually they would hire me. But when you're the youngest guy on the team and you were required to do all the writing, uh and it is like that intense and late night you end up being the only one that really knows what's in the document and i mean you have people that went back from the nixon administration so they have like lots of experience (laughs) they aren't really great with computers but i couldn't tell them anything that they didn't know about the highway trust fund or anything but none of them knew about drones or avs or anything like that so i was able to not only write the whole document to figure out and to make recommendations to secretary chow how she should run her department uh, but I got to really focus on the things that I found most interesting. So that ended up being, you know, outside of the work it took to bring the document together, it was something like a nine hour intense direct interview with Secretary Chow, who was the former Deputy Secretary of Transportation and Secretary of Labor. And I had to justify telling her what she should do with her department. So it was intense, but obviously she liked me because she volunteered me to join and move to DC and join her team. And some of the stuff that we came up with, like the drone integration pilot program, Came from that that effort and just sort of this you know idea of a federalized approach to integrating technology from a state and local level and making that reflect in the national picture, not dictating, you know, a top-down approach. If I was a reporter, I would just hang out at the GSA building at the coffee shop right outside of that, because the amount of in-depth and conversations and policy discussions and gossip that happens there. You know, reporters should just live there because it's just a coffee shop right out there. But it's everybody that's important that has a client or has a, a industry stakeholder just talking about what the administration should do. So I don't know. I guess that's neither here nor there. But it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, that makes sense. They all go to get coffee, and they meet with people on the outside, and they talk about this stuff.
0: It's great intel because you understand reporting from your past. I I love the fact that you stayed on a buddy's couch there, you know, the whole couch surfing term, you've gone from concert to concert, you're crashing in this buddy's house or that buddy's house and you're, you're couch surfing as you're going following bands around the country. So it's all, it's all coming together for you. Then you find your niche with drones. It became, the blog became a reality. You're working for Secretary Chao, who I've had the honor of meeting with, who's an incredible woman and did a great job leading the DOT Were you able to have blunt, honest conversations with her around policy or was it yes ma'am, no ma'am?
1: Well, she's very, you know, she had been focused on other areas for a while and she's very inquisitive. And also she's sort of feeling you out to figure out who you are and what you're doing. And so one, she is a lovely person. Two, she's a politician. So she knows like how to take care of people and make them feel charmed. She was doing that. Um, But three, I mean, she was also, you know, she does her homework. She goes in depth on these things. And because, you know, the documents were good and the writing was good, she was learning a lot and relearning a lot because things had changed since she'd been at the department. So, you know, it was a wonderful experience and that really helped build my relationship with the secretary for you know the four years that followed. And I guess even today.
0: The secretary and the department were well known for embracing autonomy. I'm really thankful that Secretary Chow and, and the whole department embraced autonomy. It was a very bold initiative with the current political climate then, but she said, "No, this is good for society. This is good for the economy, and this is what we're going to do." Was that? Did she have a general interest in autonomy? Does that kind of what start, what started that? Was this or where did that kind of come from?
1: I would say she didn't necessarily start out with it, but as we kept bringing these issues to her and she kept digging deeper, she sort of saw how all of this played out strategically and the impact it would happen for the country from a safety point of view, from an efficiency point of view um, and for, you know, what it takes for America to compete internationally for the decades to come. I mean, she was the former Secretary of Labor. She understands, you know, what it means to, you know, employ people in these areas and what happens to the country and to the labor force if these jobs go elsewhere. So I think that she was interested in it, uh, but she got more interested in it as time went on.
0: Very valid point with the secretary being former secretary of labor, because the driver shortage now, there's reports now, we're having to import drivers from South Africa. There's a big article because we can't we can't get drivers. And I've been very vocal on Twitter and I'm going to can- continue to be vocal on Twitter. That's why America needs to go all in on autonomous trucking. And it'll shore up the supply chain. It'll lower the cost of goods for individuals. And I say, if you can lower the cost of a roll of toilet paper by a quarter, you can lower the cost of milk by a dollar, you're going to have a really positive impact on the local community. You're going to have a positive impact on families. And for the politicians that are listening to say, please go all in on autonomous trucking. It's really, really good for the economy and companies like Finch's Locomation. They're doing really good things and it's going to create jobs and it's going to have a, a positive impact. And Finch, you, you were at DOT four years. I mean, that's like a, I don't know, like a hundred. You've got this incredible run there. What stood out to you in, in terms of accomplishments?
1: Yeah, so I I worked from January 20th at noon to January 20th at noon. Four years went wire to wire, but I mean, so the department's a fascinating place. There's nine different modes of transportation that they focus on, but you had all these new approaches that are being enabled by the development of the technology that are coming to fruition all at once. So I mean, started working with drones and the drone integration pilot program was wildly popular, wildly successful. I mean, there's still the program ended. Because unlike most government programs it had a defined end date and we ended it there are follow-on programs but we actually let a government program stop but then you had you know the automated vehicle and automated truck policies the accessibility initiatives that come from automated vehicles and the workforce impact studies for what this is going to mean for people we worked on commercial space launch and re-entry you know, spectrum issues hyperloop systems that so many people love to hate on but it's a private sector innovation. So, you know, tell them which way they need to go to get regulatory approval and let them go innovate. If they don't make it, they don't make it. Um, I also got to, which is absurd that I got to do this, but I was managing, you know, $4 billion in discretionary grants that I helped select and then helped with another 4 billion. I mean, that's like $8 billion that I got to help lay out, which is absurd. But I guess, you know, the most important thing is, so for automated vehicles and otherwise, I think the ADS 2.0 policy that focused on how the government should approach the safety of a vehicle and how industry should approach the safety of a vehicle. And then I got to lead the AV 3.0 effort, which expanded this throughout the entire USDOT and made sure everyone was on the same page for how to approach safety and how to how to develop this technology. And then AV 4.0, which has never gotten the love it deserves because it was released right before the pandemic. So we never got to really talk about it. And then also because the White House was in charge of editing, it read like an encyclopedia. So. It's one of the most important documents I think we produced, and just nobody reads it because it is boring as soon. Will
0: we eventually see from this administration or a blogger in this case summarize AV 4.0 and put it into common terms that everybody can understand, like a, a one-sheet or a simple one-page blog that goes around?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because if you look at the Automated Vehicle Comprehensive Plan, it sort of takes all of these things. We had to lay the the field, lay out the map, and then track the path. So the Automated Vehicle Comprehensive Plan came out in January. But this took, you know, we took all this effort to get everybody on the same page and then we had to go back and break apart the different use cases because it doesn't make sense to treat a neuro vehicle that delivers pizzas without a human driver involved. You can't treat that the same way you treat an 80,000 pound vehicle that's a commercial motor vehicle going on the interstate. And so we broke it apart and then highlighted the different tools that are available so you can focus on things like efficiency, like accessibility, proving the safety of automation. So that document, we got to control the editing. And so we actually had a lot of fun uh, making it clear and concise, but also adding graphics that were more fun than a government documents typically allowed to be. I think because we're on our way out, they're like, yeah, fine, you can put your your pictures, I guess. Go ahead. Um, but that helped us break it out. And frankly, I still look at that as the clearest path and the clearest document that lays out you know, what we need and frankly, what we don't need um, in the path forward.
0: Happy you said what we need and what we don't need. That that that's a big issue. The 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 hostility towards automation now it's only growing. And I and I love what you said. Let the private sector innovate. The private sector creates jobs. The government doesn't create jobs. And you're coming out of the administration. You're well known both in the the drone side. You're known in the autonomous vehicle, the ground vehicle side, and you're known in trucking. And I'm like okay where's Finch gonna go because everybody plays these game these funny games and we we all talk you go into trucking I was like, okay smart Finch clearly understands economics and how trucking is the future and this is going to be the long-term growth for autonomy and then I see the press release Chetton sends it to me Locomation I said I said, oh my God Chet, you got a whale I said, you got a whale sir I, and so what what was it did he just his happy-go-lucky self bring into the Locomation family, or or how did that go?
1: Well, I mean, essentially, because we had spent all this time breaking out the different use cases of automated vehicles, and like you said, the market, I mean, the market for automated trucks is 10 times the size of the ride-sharing industry, even though they get 10 times the press. But essentially, as I was laying all these things out in a speech before the Pittsburgh Technology Council uh, in like October, Chetton approached me, and he said, like, I had never even heard of Locomation before. But essentially, as we laid out what I thought made sense and the questions that asked about what will happen first, what's going to have the biggest impact, and what are the barriers people aren't thinking about, he, he was just like, you just described my company. Like, this is my business model. What you said is going to make sense and what's going to work. Let's have a talk. And so I didn't know he was had a master plan in timing, but so he talked plenty. And then I think I got a job offer like a week and a half after I left DOT, um, and he timed it that way on purpose. But... You know, having a human-centric model that allows trucks to operate on a planned route with link convoys makes a lot of sense. Having a human in the loop as you're developing the technology solves a lot of problems that our competitors, frankly, don't have an answer for and won't until the FMCSA moves forward their rulemaking um, for how to satisfy the requirements for all the other things a human does in a commercial motor vehicle besides driving. So this approach makes a lot of sense. Um, there's more reasons why I think it makes sense, but it's the one that I think is gonna be able to generate revenue, get on the road, gather real data, and use this to help develop the systems and use cases further. I mean, it just makes a lot of sense when you look at the you know bare essentials of it. And so Chetan, you know, he'd set this plan back in 2018 for what he wanted to do with the co- company, and he hasn't changed. I mean, it has been, you look at the fundamentals of it, and if you look at the approach we're taking, it hasn't changed, and it hasn't changed because it makes a lot of sense. And so I'm, I'm thankful that he sort of looked at the facts of the matter instead of the hype and has approached it this way. But um, it's good to have a hands-on boss, and certainly that's something that Secretary Chow and Chatten have in common, even if they have slightly different personalities.
0: <laughs> that's a really great point. Are you referencing the autonomous relay convoy technology? For our listeners who might not be familiar with the ARC technology, how would you explain it to them?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the gist of it is this. We're gonna have four stages of deployment um, with the last being fully autonomous trucks. Each stage can exist at the same time, and there's probably reasons why they can. But stage one, which we're gonna start deploying at the end of next year, is the ARC convoy system, which uh, takes two trucks and two drivers on a pre-planned route. Once they get on the interstate, the driver in the following vehicle turns on their system and goes into the sleeper berth. So then they're not using their hours of service anymore. So then roughly halfway down the route they'll wake up get used to things they switch places and now the lead driver is in the following vehicle sleeping or the vehicle switch places but they're able to keep things going uh, while while adhering to hours of service rules to let the convoy go twice as far twice as fast while following speed limits and everything generating twice as much revenue because they're hauling twice as much of a load and so this makes a lot of sense and now there are other use cases where you can have one driver in the following truck But that one still has limits um, in terms of hours of service because you still have to have a human driver in the loop and then ultimately we use these systems to go to hub to hub model and then finally the dock to dock model that everyone is sort of working as a north star but i mean it makes a lot of sense and you generate a lot of efficiencies from doing this and frankly probably you could set up a billion dollar business just with the back-end organizational work around freight matching alone So it's not really approach that it's just a a whiz bang technology. It's sort of a holistic approach where you're having to solve a number of problems at once. And this technology is just sort of the way you do it.
0: Will Wilson be that first commercial customer that's been publicly discussed in multiple blogs and interviews?
1: Yeah. So Wilson ended next year. The team's, the team's gearing for it. We're excited about it. So Wilson's going to be our first customer and then PGT over in the Midwest, not long after.
0: When you look at all this, And you talk about freight matching. Are you looking at discrepancies in the market where there's a backlog of freight, say, at a rail yard or at a warehouse? And you say, okay, Mr. Warehouse, okay, Mr. Railroad, we can move twice as much capacity. Let us help you shore up your supply chain. Is that the big pitch when you talk to these companies that just cannot get drivers, cannot get trucks to, to move all their goods?
1: yeah well i mean and also if you look at it you know something like 16 percent of all miles driven are deadhead miles which means the driver doesn't have a load and so they're just wasting gas wasting money wasting time the driver doesn't get paid for these hours or for these miles and so if you're able to take these systems where you know where our supply is you know where demand is and you know where the route's going to be matching on i5 say, you're able to do some work where you're able to match i don't know 80 percent let's just say which i did make up that number of the loads that are going to be going up and down that route You can time those out and then use this technology to make it a lot more efficient because they're not having to stop for eight hours in between and rest and sleep and, you know, be in the sleeper berth and not be able to do anything else. They're able to um, you know keep going and ultimately they're able, if you plan it right, they get home every night. So they're backed with their families. They're able to, you know deal with some of the issues that a normal person deals with. It dramatically improves quality of life when they can go home. And so it helps reduce driver turnover because a lot of companies have over hundred percent turnover every year because drivers, you know, they're out for weeks at a time on the road. Uh, they're not getting paid for those 16% of miles where they're not matched, and so they're not generating money. Uh, they're not able to have sort of the control over their lives that they want. And again, they just miss their families. I mean, loneliness is one of the leading issues uh, truck drivers deal with. I mean, it it has a real mental toll.
0: Quality of life is is key because when you look at the, the American Trucking Association has public data on this, that the amount of truckers retiring with new truckers coming in, well, it's, it's going to, it's not going to, the supply and demand is not going to match up and we're going to have a big problem there. I look at quality of life in a really interesting way. There's certain communities and states and cities and towns around the country that a lot of truck drivers tend to live in because of the where the job is or getting access to the freeways. I look at these communities and say, okay, your quality of life is improved. You can take your son to a baseball game on Sunday or you can take your daughter out for an ice cream at a local ice cream parlor. Great quality of life, but the economic impact in that community, now where more money is being spent in that community, if maybe on a Sunday night you go out for family dinner on a Sunday night as a family, not only quality the economic impact, you're going to start having all these economic growth pockets throughout the United States, which is going to be really interesting. Now those, those cities are going to become higher quality of life, better places to live because there will be more money in those cities. And that's going to be really incredible. Then maybe new families want to move in there. Then they can have larger baseball games, with more kids and it, the, the autonomous trucking the benefits that it's going to have on society are endless. Autonomous trucking is not this big bad boogeyman. that's going to kill jobs. Autonomous trucking is going to create jobs. Looking at the policy side of the ARC technology and an individual going into the sleeper berth, is that is the policy there to do that today or is that where Finch puts on the Finch hat and, and does Finch stuff? <laughs>
1: Well, a little bit of both, but you got to understand if you just look at it from a team driver approach, you're allowed to do this today. So a team driving situation is where you'll have, let's say a husband and wife combo combo, that are both operating in a truck. And just after a certain number of hours, they switch out. And so then they go in the sleeper berth and they just have another human driver in place. So as you know, in AV 3.0, the FMCSA said that the driver of a commercial motor vehicle can be a human or the machine. And so if you look at this team driver approach, and then, if you look, the essentially the driver can be a human or a machine. We're pretty much operating with four drivers, two human and two machines, and they're just switching off in that same team driving dynamic. So all the rules are in place; it all makes sense. We're not—they're not having to create anything new. The rules that are in place can be applied to this.
0: It's a really interesting model. It's a frankly, it's a brilliant model because we're in the midst, which I've been screaming from the mountaintops, the great pivot to trucking. You've got various companies that say, taxi, wait a second, we can't make any money here, we're, we're going to pivot into trucking, oh, okay, we're going to do this, uh-oh is, uh-oh is right, you're like, uh-oh, I, uh, my burn rate is this, and I'm going to run out of cash, or, oh, my investor's breathing down my neck, or I'm going to SPAC, and then, oh, wait, wait a second, I don't have revenue to meet my projections, oh, wait, there's a guy in the SEC named, named Gary Gensler, and he's not going to put up with this nonsense, you, you have all those issues, and there's a few pure trucking plays, your peers with kodiak Ambark, and too simple all focused purely on trucking from day one why did locomation make the decision to say no robo taxi now this little shiny object over there no not interested we're trucking purely trucking day one and we're only trucking why was that decision made
1: it's sort of and this is before i was there so i can't take any credit for it although I, previous politicians i so might as well I mean, if you look at the fundamental problems that industry is having, and you move aside with the exciting Gwiz technology, you have to do our analysis and decide which problems are worth solving now. So for us, it, trucking was very obvious from the beginning. It wasn't approach of we have technology, let's figure out what to strap it to so we can have some fun. It was, you know, what are the fundamentals of the business model, and the company relentlessly focused on it, which means we saved years and hundreds of millions of dollars compared to our peers. You know, I like to say that our competitors invested billions of dollars in the ecosystems on our behalf, like they helped pave the way. And because we only focused on the thing that made sense for us, we were able to take advantage of this ecosystem and move forward with the development of our technology and not be distracted by everything else going on. So we sort of got to do a little bit of leapfrogging, which is great for us. (laughs)
0: Solely focused is, is a discipline. It's something that more companies should should have. But these, I still can't get over the universal driver approach. I've spoken to safety experts, I've spoken to brake experts, I've spoken to truck drivers, I've spoken to UPS drivers, anybody that I could talk to that drives for a living or that's involved in any, any form of the transportation can't figure it out. What are your thoughts on the universal driver approach?
1: So if by that you mean the system is set up that can operate everything from a light duty passenger vehicle to a commercial motor vehicle, right?
0: Exactly. So I'll give you an example. I'm licensed. I live in the state of Florida. I am licensed by the state of Florida the Department of Motor Vehicle to drive a vehicle. I am not licensed for the CDL to drive a class eight truck. You put me in a class eight truck today without proper training. I'm, I am have no idea what's going on. Okay. You put me in a vehicle. I know how to get to the grocery store. I know how to get to school or to the office. I just I, I don't see the universal driver. But it's different driving techniques. You have air brakes versus this different weights. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting because I've seen studies that show that only 30 to 40% of the technology actually can spill over. And so on one hand, you have an intense amount of distraction because you're trying to do two things at once. Your leadership is focusing on different use case. They're having to deal with different issues and standards and local rules. Essentially, they're, they're distracted because they're trying to do two things at once and you know they have said publicly that there really isn't that much overlap between the technology, so they're running two businesses at the same time, going after two different markets, um, and just hoping that you know they'll be able to solve for them both. And frankly, I hope they can. You know, there's a lot of good companies and a lot of good people working for them that do that. But I'm thankful that we're just focusing on the one use case and the development of that because you know those that have the smartest approach and the and don't get distracted will be the ones that win out. I think.
0: I think you're right. I'll frankly say. I, I know you're right. So you, you look at this from a policy perspective. So we're going to put Finch the Politician's hat on here for a minute. To me, I'm like, wait a second. There's legal issues here. There's insurance issues. It's two different sets of policies. Does this create potential legal liability issues with a universal driver? Like just putting this all together. So if you're going to say, okay, uh, let's just call it universal driver. Okay, here we're going to put you in vehicle. Okay. And we're going to put you in truck. It, it just seems like there's this massive issues that are unresolved.
1: Since I'm wearing my politician's hat, I can tell you that uh, if we're looking at the insurance approach, they have a framework for how they assess responsibility and, you know, if something happens, who's at fault. Um, But if you look at the different um, standards that are being developed to show safety cases, you're essentially just gonna have to split it off and make two completely separate uh, safety cases or more. And until you're able to do that, and this can be a very stringent process, it should be a very stringent process for you to be able to prove safety to yourself and your insurers so that they'll cover you, and ultimately to the regulators and to the local governments that you're going to be deploying your technology in front of. You have to be able to communicate these things to them. And so it's just more work, but it's doable. And, you know, good on them.
0: Because I've always made the argument, Break these companies in two uh, put, or, and put the IP in a holding company. License it to company A, vehicle, company B, trucking. You, you have to do something to separate your legal liability. Li- you do something for your insurance. They're, they're different companies, but that's me putting on a I'm not a lawyer hat. For the listeners, I am not a lawyer and it's not legal advice. It's merely an opinion. And I'm going to keep you in your, your politician hat. We're, I you lived in California and we're going to go into California. It's a sensitive topic for people, but we're going to go there now when will autonomous trucks be able to operate in the state of california
1: i mean frankly it can't be too soon the state needs it if you look at the congestion and freight traffic there uh, they lead the nation in terms of congested urban areas uh 87 of their urban areas and urban interstates are congested and so if you're looking at ways you can improve the efficiency of the system which you know reduces emissions and reduces congestion um, the technology gives you more flexibility on when to drive so you can drive it at night and not around congested cities and rush hours, but they can't, it can't get here soon enough, you know this, but in 2012, uh, California legislature passed a law uh, requiring the state to move forward with permissive regulations to allow deployment and testing in the state. So they decided to split into light duty vehicles and commercial motor vehicles, which is fine. They moved with a, ahead with light duty vehicle rules in 2014, but they haven't moved ahead on the commercial motor vehicles rule. And to really get the impacts that you can have to safety and emissions and the efficiency and everything like that, all the things California needs, they need to move forward on the commercial motor vehicle rule. Uh, we've recently joined a number of efforts to try and encourage them to do so. Um, and I know in a previous conversation we had, we talked about probably uncertainty about uh, the recall election if I had to assume, I would assume that's sort of freezing everything in place because no one's comfortable moving forward until they have that certainty for fear of antagonizing somebody that may not like it. So they just put it on hold until uh, a later date when they feel better about it. But I mean, you're losing valuable opportunities. California is supposed to be one of the innovative centers of the world. And if they're banning their own technology, it'll go elsewhere or be developed elsewhere. Uh, and California won't benefit. So I'm hoping that we can bring the technology to California and they can get the better results that, I'm speaking like a politician, the better results that those Americans deserve there.
0: Bingo. We are seeing it. Co- companies are are fleeing California. An autonomous vehicle on the ground. passenger side are coming to Florida. Argo AI, they have publicly they are all in on Miami. They're not really operating California, even though they got the permit. They publicly stated Miami's that. You've had schwab moved from san francisco to dallas like you're having big companies leave because the the uh, unfair business and regulatory climate does this pose an issue for the industry if newsom wins re-election is it just okay companies gonna be forced to leave
1: well i mean it's interesting because i mean for us it's a little bit different the teamsters and the unions as a whole seem at this moment knock on wood to be a little more comfortable with our approach because we keep humans in the loop and because they're able to generate twice as much revenue per driver. So, you know, when the Teamsters were at their best and strongest in like the 70s, they were embracing technology to grow revenue as a whole for everyone and to grow the pie. That's when they were successful by embracing this technology. So I've actually talked to some of the people I know that are in the Teamsters, and I've offered to go talk at their convention. And they're like, that would be wonderful. They're going to boo you. They're gonna fight you. Like, it's was like, I'll do it. I mean, it'll be fun. So I think that we actually have a compelling case as an industry and particularly as Locomation for what they're looking for and what their concerns are, because ultimately their concerns about the impacts to real humans that this technology can have. And if you don't respect that and if you don't understand where they're coming from there, you don't deserve to be listened to. But if you hear them out and understand and figure out how you can work together to achieve the policy outcomes that are good for everybody, You can work together, and so I'm foolishly optimistic that we can work together and get to uh, approaches and solutions that make sense for everybody because, I mean, the demand's increasing, the expectations for turnaround time's increasing, the truck driver shortage is getting bigger. You know, if we do this right, truck drivers can use this technology to their advantage and not be replaced by this technology in the long run. More jobs will be made than will be lost.
0: More jobs will be made than are lost. Let, let, let's seep in there for a minute. More jobs would be made than they're lost.
1: That is from official studies that have been done at the USDOT. I mean, they're talking about 25,000 to 33,000 new jobs a year generated by the lower cost of freight, the ability to get goods to market better, and to be able to increase domestic exports through the lower cost. And, you know, all jobs should see an increase of about $200. Now that's not a lot, but it means that it's not going down. The jobs are not being devalued, um, even if they're necessarily not necessarily all happening in the cab of a truck. I mean, most of the jobs in trucking, the majority of jobs in trucking aren't taking place in the cab. So it shouldn't be a surprise that a lot of the growth in the jobs won't take place in the cab. You can use technology to improve the quality of life for all of these truckers and all the people that work in warehousing and logistics, if you do it right.
0: If you do it right, key. The the other thing to point out: conversations. We live in a, a hyperpartisan society where everybody's afraid to have an open intellectual conversation. It's always healthy to have a conversation with somebody that you disagree with, and you learn, or you read a book of a topic that you might not agree because you might learn something from that. And conversations are healthy. And technology is not the boogeyman. An extra two hundred dollars goes a long way. That's twenty four hundred dollars a year. You put that into the S and P five hundred. A standard retirement account the compounding on that will have a long-term positive impact for these individuals because you look at california and there's a lot of individuals there that you know we've talked about don't want to have a conversation about autonomous trucking it's the, the the boogeyman there's polling that came out of california today that newsom's within the margin of error to get recalled and there's an individual that's starting to to surge now larry elder the the sage from south central who has got a radio show big big platform Let's say for, uh, this is a hypothetical here. Larry Elder wins the recall election, becomes the first African-American governor of the state of California. Does he step back and say, wait a second, jobs are leaving the state. I got elected to try and clean up this mess. Does he openly embrace autonomous trucking and try and undo the fiasco that's happening in the ports where cargo is just sitting there?
1: Well, look, I hope whoever wins, they become more comfortable with engaging with this technology. I mean, again, California is a hub for innovation. They are you know, a crown jewel of the world. Their institutions, their development, Silicon Valley is the envy of all nations. So if they if they don't embrace this as part of their future, they'll lose that part of their future. And so I don't know who's gonna win. And even if I did, it wouldn't be wise to speculate on this podcast, because by the time people hear it, I'll be wrong anyway. But um, it is an opportunity for either candidate. It is a pivot point to be able to take another look at this and re-engage on it regardless of who the next governor is.
0: Staying on the, the the topic of the port, uh, the ports of San Pedro and LA, Goldman Sachs came out with a report saying it's taken six days to unload cargo ships, instead of two days due to a lack of trucks. Could locomation go in there today and say, "Hey, portmaster, port individual, we've got a solution. We can help move move the goods out of the ports and help that backlog because more more and more cargo is going into that port. You need more and more individuals to, to unload it." So it seems that if you can put the capacity, they can hire more individuals in the port. Am I thinking about that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the port of LA is the busiest, most important port in the country. And the FMCSA has been doing research around uh, drayage projects, which um, essentially is saying, um, you know, for the in-yard moves around a port, not on the road, but in these essentially parking lots, although that's not what it is. You know, you can use this technology and then you have cases where it can be as simple as uh, queuing, which is when truck drivers are waiting to pick up their loads, they have to sit in their truck and run the engines and they're idling and not doing anything, they're just waiting in line so that they can move up at two miles per hour every now and then. That seems like a very simple approach that you can take with the technology to let it just roll forward slowly and then alert the driver as they're finally getting close to taking load. I mean, that seems like that's a way where you can use technology to your advantage, make the system more efficient, more effective, reduce emissions, um, but not trigger a lot of the alarms that some of the longshoremen and uh, port workers have around the future of their jobs. Because L.A. is a port that can use this technology more than anybody, but politically, I don't know that they're ready to because of their concerns around um, you know longshoremen and port workers losing their jobs. So they could use the technology, but I don't know that they're ready there.
0: Does it become a, a political issue where consumers start calling their congressmen and, and their senators say, wait a second, I can't get my goods and my goods are up 30% now. We have runaway inflation right now. You know, Chairman Powell says it's, it's transitory. I don't buy it's transitory. It's, it's it's here for the long haul, as Larry Summers is saying. Do they start calling their congressmen, their senators, and say, the cost of goods are going up, and my stuff is sitting in the ports. Do something about this? Does does, does political pressure come down to undo that clock?
1: I can't see it playing out exactly like that. Um, And certainly people aren't yet comfortable with automated vehicles. One, because they don't know what you mean if you're actually referring to a level two system where a human's supposed to be driving, but people think it's operating at a higher level. Or two, the actual self-driving vehicles that really aren't even out there yet today. And so... I don't know that people feel comfortable with automated vehicle technology yet, but we're not asking them to be yet. I mean, until we're actually ready to go and you can show people and hopefully we're we'll doing a number of demonstrations in the next year and a half uh, to let people see, touch, feel, understand what the technology is and what it isn't, that's how you get public confidence and public trust. Um, and so they may say things like fix this because the price of goods is going up, but they're probably not going to turn around and say, so therefore you need to prove locomation. Um, but it'd be nice if they did.
0: Never underestimate the U.S. Cons- consumer. I believe that with this inflation that we're battling, will have a really positive impact for the autonomous trucking industry as a whole because the consumers are going to say, wait a second, the cost of meat is up, the cost of milk is up, the cost of toilet paper is up. Enough's enough. Find a solution and you're going to find a-, a blogger with a pretty big vocal mouth, with a big following that's going to, hit on a piece and say wait a second there's a solution here it's autonomous trucking and the beauty about autonomous trucking on the i'm going to stay on the political side here for a minute you've got Larry Fink at BlackRock tote in the ESG train the ESG is, is is running away and autonomous trucking is good for the environment it has a really it's a positive ESG company that's going to play really well can you talk about the ESG benefits of autonomous trucking
1: Yeah, so it's actually super interesting because companies like BlackRock and Vanguard are putting a huge emphasis on ESG issues. And these are the sort of um, index funds that invest as a whole in different industries. Right. And so what they're looking for, the um, risks that everyone would face together. They're not as worried about the individual risks of a company. They're worried about what are the big picture issues that could happen like covid or something like that that are just. Uh, black swan issues, if you you will. So they're trying to invest in ways that can handle some of these big picture issues. And they now control something like 20% of the market, and that's increasing as well. And so the way they invest and the way they emphasize sustainability issues and governance issues is going to be important. For us, every vehicle, uh, as part of the ARC concept, saves 18.5% in fuel and reduces that amount in emissions. So that's something like about 85 metric tons per vehicle per year. If you look at the first two customers alone, so that's 2,120 vehicles, that's roughly 180,000 metric tons of emissions reduced a year. That's the equivalent of removing over 39,000 passenger vehicles from the road or 200 million pounds of coal being burned. This is at the scope we're talking about and the scale we're talking about. This technology can make a dramatic impact to the emissions in the US companies that embrace this and use this as part of their ESG goals and, you know, are able to use this technology will be the ones that will get invested in. So they'll have the positive benefits when they can prove this, you know, not just with the individual companies saving on fuels, but in terms of the overall stock market investments in their approach. And I'll say that our, our approach is a lot more than everybody else's because, yes, we take into account, you know, the reduced Um, Fuel burned when you can control for speed, when you can plan the routes better, when you're not spending an hour a day searching for parking or having to run the engine for idling um, to run the AC. But also, we get all the efficiencies from platooning and things like that. So we almost, not quite, almost double what everybody else can claim in terms of fuel efficiency because of that linked convoy concept.
0: 180 metric tons of carbon removed from the environment. 180,000. 180,000 metric tons of carbon move from the environment every year. Why are you not screaming from the mountaintops that statistic? Because that statistic, you said it resonates with, with Larry Finks doing backflips into a pool, giving Chetan and you high fives. But also, for the public that wants their goods, you're starting... You're going to see... I believe that you're going to see some ESG components around shipping. Like, you're going to have these different options. Okay, I want... I want the, the, the company that uh, shipped this the most ESG, um, environmentally friendly way. You're, you're, you're seeing that in, in goods now, in, in homes. If it's shampoo, um, you're seeing it with, I don't know, my eggs. I have eggs in the refrigerator. You couldn't believe this. They're called happy eggs. So these eggs are Instagrammable. They were, um, you know, the chickens can roam around and they're free and they're ha- Okay. But you're going to see that same thing with shipping. So why aren't you screaming 180,000 metric tons of carbon saved a year from the mountaintops?
1: Well, we're doing more and more work in this space. Um, And frankly, we're going to be working or we're looking at working with some of our partners in states and in federal agencies and otherwise to make sure we can communicate this model um, in the way that they can take best. Because there's going to be a lot of work in the coming years on fuel efficiency rules and everything like that. So we have to lower the barriers. To our customers being able to adopt this technology and really bring it in and uh, develop a whole ecosystem around it. So we're laying the groundwork now. I mean, I'm on your podcast now talking about these numbers. So hopefully this is a starting point. But we're going to get better and better about telling this story every day because it's important. It's important to the country. It's important to the investors. It's important to the administration. I mean, we everybody's got to be able to tell this story, and frankly, we just have the best story to tell out of everybody. So you'll hear it most from us.
0: Thank you for, for coming on the podcast, and thank you to our listenership that can, continues to, to grow. ESG is the future. If, if you're a company that you're in doing anything and you don't have an ESG component, you can't go public. You're, you're going to get some rulings out of the SEC where you're going to have to disclose your ESG rankings for public companies. Consumers want ESG. There's no doubt that ESG is the future, and as we go in another four or eight years into another administration... That trend's going to continue, as I like to say. The cat's out of the bag, and there's no going back. It's only going to continue to expand or be modified. And you know, politicians will do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They'll put their Finch hat on, and they'll, they'll tango. Finch, putting this whole conversation into context and reflecting on your background, why Why policy? What, what was it? Was there some moment early on you say, wait a second. I'm going to do this music blog, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way into policy. What was it? Did, did you in your local community and join the, the political clubs to learn what, what was it
1: i mean ultimately i went after college i went and uh interned on the hill and got a job on the hill so that i could get a fifty thousand foot view of what made sense of what business to look at and you know i worked for a member on the Senate armed services committee i'm not a veteran i uh you know worked on the judiciary committee i'm not a lawyer um, but I certainly do like to talk and I certainly do like to have conversations about how things should be. And so it's sort of the natural avenue for these things, being able to look at these issues, do a deep dive in them and then be able to hash it out with people. So I mean, yeah. policy is really the only thing that made sense for me and I love it. I mean, it's a lot of fun.
0: It's been a lot of fun having you on here because I also like to talk. And so this has been a super fun conversation and we've been all over the map, which is great, but you love to talk, but you also give back. You're a board member of Best Robotics. Talk about that. Why? It's really cool.
1: So not dissimilar from my conversations with Chet, and um, the head of Best Robotics reached out to me when I was at DOT, because as I talked about the workforce of the future in ways the department should be engaging with technology and then lowering the barriers to pushing that out to schools and then ultimately to the broader ecosystem, I mean, he's like, I really like what you're saying. And so, you know, Best Robotics, uh, I guess, quick background on Best Robotics. So it was started in 94 in Texas. Uh, They've worked with over 200,000 middle school and high school kids across the nation. Uh, Today, we've got 49 hubs in 17 states serving 20,000 students a year, sixth through twelfth grade uh, at over 900 schools and hopefully expanding further. Uh, COVID hit them, you know, much like everybody else. But what it is, is it's a competition that is a robotics competition, where all the different roles that it takes essentially to run a company are played out by these kids and they organize themselves and they collaborate around it. And so they do things like, you know, project management, leadership. They do have some of the robotic skills. They do look at software development, everything like that. But if you look at the country, I mean, we don't, kids don't have shop anymore, right? They don't have a class like that. And so when you talk about robotics, it sounds intimidating. They don't know what it means. And they don't know that most of robotics is not some wonky software engineering thing. It's a lot more of the, you know, bread and butter type skills. Um, and so kids that get exposed to this sort of thing are far and away more likely to join a STEM field later in life in college and so on. So if we look at the nation and the broad impacts, uh, we're short about 3.5 million Uh, employees, um, they can fill these STEM jobs today. And, you know, there's millions more that we're gonna need in the future. One study that, I haven't found the study, but Senator Portman said it on the Senate floor, so I assume it's true, uh, found out that this skills gap we have is gonna cost nearly $1.2 trillion in economic output over the next 10 years. So this is about training the workforce of the future. There are other efforts about trying to get people reskilled and ready to take the jobs today. But if you look at this program, it attracts a sign it's free, right? So the kids don't pay anything. they just it's organized and people sponsor it. Um, but it attracts a significant number of young women, thirty four percent, which is over double what you see represented in STEM fields, and forty one percent minorities. And gifted low-income minority students often go unrecognized in urban school systems and elsewhere uh, because they're not equipped to identify this talent and, You know they may just be assumed that in these underfunded schools the kids are low performers and so they just don't bother so this is a pathway to generate the future workforce and the future skills that the nation needs while equipping these students with what they need to be successful in the business whether they're going to be a robotics engineer or if they just want to be a policy guy that likes to talk about how neat everyone else's work is, this lowers the barriers to get them comfortable with these things so that they can engage in these areas and they aren't afraid and intimidated by it. So I love the program. Uh, I'm brand new in it. I started there around, I guess, March, something like that. Uh, and I it's just terrific. And I'm looking forward to this fall's competitions, which kick off in October.
0: Shop in high school is very, very important it's it's a shame it's like the art goes away the music classes go away the shop goes away because the children and there they learn how to woodwork to use their hands they learn how to weld and build things you said that robotics oh it's just all software it's just all software no somebody's actually got to build the robot and weld and weld it together and and, and learn it's it these hands-on skills are something that you can't replace and once a child learns those Something breaks in their house when they're older. Well, I learned that in shop. I can fix that. Has a positive economic impact because they don't necessarily have to hire somebody. So it helps them in their house. But they, they have all these skills. Then when you build something with your hands, there's a genuine sense of pride. Look look what I built. Look what I built. There's that sense of sense of pride. So thank you for what you're doing with Best Robotics because it's needed as, as school's Get rid of shops. Thank goodness for Best Robotics to be there to help these children learn these skills. That's something you should be extremely, extremely proud of.
1: And if anybody wants to volunteer or donate or uh, just be involved or just pay attention to it for a year before they figure out what they want to do, just reach out to me. I'm around. Um, My email is finchfulton at gmail.com. It's pretty straightforward. Um, I'd love to help connect the dots because it is something that makes real impacts in real people's lives and it's good for the country. So it's just a wonderful program.
0: What's the site if they want to Google it? Is it bestrobotics.com? Is it that simple? It's bestrobotics.org. Bestrobotics.org. I repeat, bestrobotics.org. Finch, we've, we've covered a ton, a ton of ground in this. We've talked about policy, applications for autonomous trucking, ESG, giving back. The, the big question I have for you, putting this all together, what is the future of autonomous trucking?
1: I think the future is both gonna be here faster than people generally expect, but take a lot longer to roll out than people hope for. But when we do it right, and when we have wide scale deployment, you're gonna see much higher safety numbers. You're gonna see better efficiency of the system. America will be more competitive, both in the development of this technology and in the ability for this technology to lower the price of goods domestically and abroad. You're gonna see good paying American jobs developed here in this country if we embrace this technology. And you're just gonna see a better overall outcome for the nation. I mean, there's a lot you can do. You know, we used to say this technology is not a silver bullet that can fix everything, but it sure does help. And so being able to work and pace things and time things and time people's expectations with where the technology is and where it isn't and be able to not try and solve for something that may happen 30 years down the road because you're worried about it today. Let the ecosystem develop. Don't expect too much from it too soon. Let it mature uh, and don't you know preemptively regulate something. You don't regulate uh, technology when you mean to regulate an action. There are tools in place that ensure safety and good outcomes for everybody. Let's use the tools we have and move forward on them and not try and solve for every issue that may eventually come up all at once. We've got a long path forward or a long road ahead, I guess it's to say. And we have a great opportunity to work together as an ecosystem. So let's take advantage of it.
0: Let's definitely take advantage of it. What you said reminds me of a quote then uh, Governor Rick Scott, now Senator Rick Scott said, jobs, jobs, jobs. And I'm going to point out again, autonomous trucking will keep jobs because the industry will keep on trucking. As Bobby Weir once sang in The Grateful Dead and Finch, as we look to wrap up, what would you like our listeners to take away with them with this really fun, interesting conversation?
1: Well, the dumbest thing I can say is uh, if you ever get the opportunity to take the pin on a project, take it. Because then you get to put in your own ideas. Uh, and a lot of interesting and unexpected doors can open up when you take the chance and put yourself out there in writing, in the development of these ideas. Um and ultimately like sure I've had some good experiences now but I didn't know this stuff before I started I had to do the work and writing gave me the path forward now I know this stuff but don't assume that because you don't know it now you can't find the resources do the research and figure it out yourself ultimately we need people to step up and be the answer because you'd be shocked at how often no one has the answer and we all have to figure it out together hopefully that's that's I don't know what sort of takeaway that is for people but Um, hopefully it gives people sort of an idea of what opportunities are out there if they're just interested and take advantage of it.
0: As the Nike commercials and ads say, just do it. It, It's simple as that. And that's how I would, I would, I would summarize that because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is locomotion and everybody keep on trucking. Finch, thanks for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. Join us next time when I sit down with Brian Hurd, vice president of Aon Cyber Solutions to discuss terrorism and cyber threats currently facing the global economy. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing us at podcast at sae.org. That's podcast at sae.org. Also, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn to stay connected and to continue the conversation.